right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. I'm supposed Science to do the and, here we are. I screwed it up. A, yeah, you started like we yeah, we have a thing and you're just totally messed. And then you were like just a couple episodes ago, you were like all over me for yeah, messing it up. For messing Bro. up. Bro. Oh man, this is horrible. Hey, I this apologize. is uh science in between. This is Ollie. And this is Scott. And this is episode 41. We're yeah, back sure in is. our prime. Oh. That's right. Yeah, and little little background noise. But I was a, a bark of uh of accomplishment right there that's what that was that was like 41 and a little bark in the background to solidify that point so uh this week we're gonna um keep going with our our thoughts on different learning theories and what we wanted to do was uh dig into what i think is probably one of if, if you've been following us through these you know design principles um then you're going to see a lot of, uh, I don't know, cross-section, uh, cross, intersection. Intersection, cross-connection. Cross-connection, cross-cutting stuff. Intertextuality. Yes, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, between uh, the things we talked about with the design principles, because I just see them embedded throughout this, uh, this pretty seminal article from 1989 um, by Brown, Collins, and Duguid uh, that appeared in Educational Researcher. And it has the... Uh, you know, sort of, you know, it's 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 a a title that I don't think really it it doesn't seem all that impactful. But when you read it, it's so dense. It's yeah. Situated cognition and the culture of learning. Right, and I think the thing is that most people think of this as the cognitive apprenticeship article. Yeah. Like if 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 you talk about this article with people who are you know learning theory nerds um, or whatever, like people who know about learning, um, they tend not to remember the actual title of the article. They yeah. tend to think of it as cognitive apprenticeship, which is the model that they put forward in the article. But um, but yeah, I mean it it is it is like clearly one of the most important articles uh of its kind um what did we say last time Twenty three thousand citations or something yeah I and mean, it's just yeah. it's like you can't it's almost not even worth counting how many citations it has so it, it's just a a really important article but i think for me it's i think of it as like the training wheels article for sociocultural theory because it's it's a bridge piece between um sort of cognitive focus like conceptual change sort of models of learning sure. and more contemporary social sociocultural ones and this is you know it, it's it's and it's really well written and i gotta give them a shout out they have a, a picture that really has nothing it's it's like an illustration and its only purpose is uh to be an illustration it's not a graph it's not a chart it provides no data for the article it's just it's just a picture which you you really don't see in in research articles very often. Yeah, I I have read this article numerous times. I haven't read it in years, but every time I come to that picture, I go, "WTF? Why is this here? <laughs> what, is, what is this doing?" Yeah, it's like it's kind of got this like I don't know like Socrates thing going where they're just like you know, and 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 the caption is pretty like yeah. you know. Meh. it's like the tent makers and the apprentice it's like yeah. really that's what you get out of this picture yep. um yeah so but that's pretty surface level stuff scott you know yeah i know but i but i just love the fact that like the people the editors at the journal didn't even say 
dudes, what is this picture for? <laughs> like, why, why are we taking up like a third of a page in our, in our precious journal pages to publish this picture yeah. of like people making a tent? Right. And it, yeah, it's a significant part of the, that page. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it, is, yeah. it is definitely a third, maybe close to a half of that page. And uh, yeah, it's, it's ludicrous, but it is, it, do, I'll go, it does. I'll give go further than that. Like, I would oh. say like all of the illustrations in this article are, are kind of pointless. They're kind of, I'm going to say well, eh, all of I the mean, illustrations. Eh. I mean, the, the, the other ones are, are pictures of like math problems um, and they have an illustrative component to them. I mean, we can talk about figure three. I, I have a sort of a, a beef with, uh, with um, educational research in general that where they put a bunch of uh, words and point, you know, have arrows right. point arrows, between yeah. them and say, no, we've talked about that before. Yeah, yes. And I've, 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 since we talked about that in that episode, I've been sending you ones, right? I've been texting, Hey, how about this one? Like just concentric circles and things. That's yeah. the best. It's like, yeah. Like here's a circle, here's a concentric circle, here's another one and yeah. another, and then just put some, you know, all with uh, you know, Calibre font. Right. Oh, not, <laughs> no, it's a typeface, isn't it? I know. I just was setting you up there. You did, on both counts, Calibre right. and oh. Yes. I was, okay, I was we're, not, I was, we're not going down that rabbit hole. I was not just, unless we're gonna have we're, we're not gonna have a special guest. Uh, I was triggering you, know. you there. I was trying to. I was trying not, to not unless we're having a junior Dreon on the party who's gonna who's gonna come in here and school her dad on typeface right. versus font. That's exactly how it'd go. You know, I have some uh some art professor f- friends who would absolutely school me on that yeah. too. Yeah. Um but that uh, you know, we're getting, you know, down the rabbit Distracted hole. Distracted in minutiae. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So not esoteric, but not like, esoteric. This is hardly esoteric. No, <laughs> no, it's not. All right. So let's, let's do this. Since this is all around this cognitive apprenticeship stuff. Um, I think it's probably pretty important that we spend a little bit of time talking about that and unpacking that. And I will say that um, the authors do that really well, mm-hmm. right? They, they go, okay, let's talk about the apprenticeship first. Like, why are we using this apprenticeship as a, as a model for learning? And then why do we have this cognitive thing on, in front of it? Because they're not the first ones to talk about apprenticeship in, in, as a learning sort of no. thing, right? Right, as um, a practice. Yeah. It's a practice, right. Um, because, you know, Levin Wanger certainly do it, right? And, 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 that, and that predates this, doesn't it? Levin Wanger? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. it was the same year, I think, actually. The, the, they um, reference it. They re- reference Lave in here. Lave's yeah. work from 88. Yeah. Right, which is a different piece. But the sort sure. of the, the key, the piece that we all think of, the Levin Wanger, I think was also 89. But, um, but the, the thing that I think is, is interesting is, so this, in this time period, this idea of situated cognition was sort of the central operating thing that everybody's talking yeah. about. So Lave and Wenger talk about it in terms of community as a practice. Um, but, but this idea of situated cognition, and we'll get into this, I think, but um, this was, this article is Brown Collins and Duguid's sort of model of what situated cognition looks like. So that's right. why we think of it as cognitive apprenticeship. They were tr- really trying to describe situated cognition and what it means. Um, but they took this metaphor of apprenticeship and used it as a as a rhetorical tool to help explain this idea that people were sort of still trying to get their heads around. Right. It was almost like they were operationalizing it. Right. I mean, it was almost like, here's how, here's how you could, 
you know, do this in a classroom setting? Because they do um, talk about it from practice, right? They talk about it from, you know, math. You know, they, they reference a lot of Schoenfeld's work where they talk about right. here's Lambert, how, yeah. right. And here's how this could play out in, in mathematics, you know, um, right. by, but, good. Well, I just, what, what I want to be careful about is differentiating between theories of learning and the implications for teaching, right? Cause those are different things and they get mixed together a lot and, and not even necessarily the implications for teaching, but specific practices, right? So <clears throat> this is the complicated thing about teaching and learning is that, is that the teaching part can be described using lots of different learning theory. So they, they name situated cognition and cognitive apprenticeship, and then they talk about how it might, you know, what, what this might look like and how it might be different than how we normally think of teaching. But those teaching examples could be explained using conceptual change as well. So it's, it's tricky. And I, and I try when I, you know, this, this course that you took, you know, eons ago, what I try to do in that course is really try and to the degree that we can separate those things. So really think about, well, what are they saying about learning? And then what does that tell us about teaching? Yeah. So, Um, so I'll just, should I just use their words, you know, to, to talk about how they uh, unpack apprenticeship? They say, so the term apprenticeship helps to emphasize the centrality of activity. Mm-hmm. Coming back to some of the things we've talked about, the, uh, the centrality of activity and learning and knowledge and highlights the inherently context dependent, situated, enculturating nature of learning. Mm-hmm. And apprenticeship also suggests the paradigm of situated modeling, coaching, and fading. And I love that. So this is on page 39. Because I think one, they, they, they throw out some great words like the enculturating. That's one of my favorite words yeah. when, I, when, when I think about like the social nature of learning, right? Is that there's an enculturation because it's really about, you know, the culture, right? which is, comes back to the title, right? It comes mm-hmm. back to that, the, 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 the situatedness of the things we do. Um, in our classrooms to try to promote learning or what we should be doing. Right. Or if we, or could be doing. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the other thing that they're trying to point out here is that, you know, everything is situated. Um, Like they're not talking about some kinds of learning. They're talking about all kinds of learning. And, and uh, so I think, and the reason that's important um, is another thing that this paper did not by itself, but certainly was a big part of was laying the groundwork for the NGSS and the way that we think about practices, right? So the, the reason that practices exist in the NGSS is at least in part because of this situated perspective moving into the more mainstream of learning theory. And, and this paper in particular um, because it sort of takes up this idea of the disciplinary community versus the school community yeah. um, that, that, you know, what is it, they use that as a, that's why they choose apprenticeship is so they can talk about disciplinary communities as places where people are apprenticed into this, um, you know, kind of, well, the discipline, but the learning, right. Um, and contrasting that with schools, um, which they sort of, you know, argue are decontextualized, right? But that's, even that's a little tricky. And I think we'll have to talk about that a little too. But that idea that um, learning is contextual um, and is embedded in these practices that you engage in. So it's not just that there are process, process skills that you have to learn. It's that the skills and the, and the content are inextricable from each other. Yeah. And uh, so that, I think that was a big idea and it did, it did um, play an important role in the way that we thought about standards, especially in the NGSS. 
Well, it, it only took like what twenty some odd years before they actually got into the the standards, right? Yeah, I mean, you could see it a little bit in the in the National Science Education Standards from um, like the nineties, from the nineties. Yeah, but yeah. but it was still. I mean, again, this paper was published in eighty nine, so sure. So so those standards weren't much after that. So really, um, yeah, I mean, things move slowly, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. So that's so, the, the that's the apprenticeship side of it. And then they talk about, you know, they, they draw on Lay's work when they talk a little bit about the apprenticeship stuff, when they talk about like, you know, tailors learning how to iron, right? Mm-hmm. They say, right. and I tried to um, downplay my Pittsburgh accent right there at the iron. Thank you. Yeah. Iron. Yeah. yeah. Iron. Um, but, you know, how that is a legitimate practice, you know, if they learn how to iron, then that can lead to and scaffold to more authentic things, more getting you closer to full participation as a tailor. You know, this is something that's important and it's not um, something we're just like talking about it in the abstract, like they're actually doing it right. They're actually talking about um, how to iron. And, and I know I'm going down this, this well a little bit, but I think that it's, it's important because it, it's about that, situated modeling right it's about coaching and it's also about that that fading concept i think is important too that because it also talks about our role as the you know the i guess mentor facilitator coach whatever that role is knowledgeable other right um is that what we're trying to do is to give them the skill set as an and give them you know an authentic activity Right. Because it's all embedded in activity um, and that it leads to other things that are also legitimate, that are also also authentic. Um, yeah. So I, I think that you've hit on, the, on really, the, I think, the key idea from all of this, which is um, this idea of authentic activity or authentic practice. Right. Um, and really <clears throat> what they use that for is to say, let's look at what kids do in school. And again, like you said, they're talking about math. Um, but if we talk about science, cause that's what we care about. Like if you look at the activities that kids do in school, when they're doing science, um, well, what do they do? They take notes from a PowerPoint slide that the teacher is yeah. presenting. They might do problem sets. Um, you know, I always, uh, wheel out the example from physics when I was a physics teacher of, you know, the projectile motion problems where it's like, yeah. you know, the cannons on a cliff, the cannons in a hole, the cannons, you know, got a 45 degree angle and, a and now it's got a 60 degree angle. And, you know, so, so these problem sets, the labs, which have, you know, clear outcomes are right. in advance. The verification, those ver- yeah. verification labs, right? So all those things are things that scientists don't do. Like yeah. s- scientists don't do any of those things. And so, so Brown, Collins and Duguid are essentially saying, look, if we want people to learn science, um, we have to make science classrooms be like what scientists do. Um, because the learning is situated, it's embedded in these authentic practices. And when you, when you take away, when you, when you um, uh, like abstract, that's the language they use because it's from, it's from the cognitive side, right? Cause they're using it against them to some degree. When you abstract that knowledge out of the context in which it, it occurs, it doesn't mean anything. You right. can't use it. Because it, it loses it all the context. Right. Yeah. And the, and the context is 
the learning. Like they're basically saying when you extract it from context, you've turned it into nothing. It's just, you know, it's just a weight. It's words that people can memorize. So, um, so it's, it's, you know, in its strongest form, it's a very powerful idea and it's a very strong critique of, um, like the way that we think about learning, not just how schools are, are operating, but, but just how we think about learning in general. I think what, what, when I was reading this, um, prior to the episode, um, I was thinking about how, like last week we talked about Dewey and, and, and how, he was, you know, a big believer of, you know, that, that the process of learning is the learning, right? We're not learning facts. We're not learning these things just for the sake of learning. The, the, the actual learning is the, should be the outcome, right? Like mm-hmm. talking about it and doing this stuff is, is much more important, you know, than thinking and, and you know, is the, is the critical part. And I, I see that sort of like really intersecting nicely with this is that, you know, if we give students or I'm going to pull that back, not give students, if we help them identify problems or things that they want to, to mm-hmm. examine, again, that's coming, you know, from, from Dewey, um, but also really nicely intersects here in that if we give them, if they are able to identify activities or identify problems that they want to solve, then we can help them, you know, learn through that process because that's the practice that we want them to learn right it's embedded in that activity it's embedded in the the problems and specifically from science you know um yeah and i think that i was trying to think of like when i did this the best as a teacher when i created situations where i did this the best Mm. because i I've, I've taught everything from like fifth grade all the way up into doctoral students. So I have a pretty wide swath of experience as a teacher. Um, you know, so I've, you know, taught middle school, I've taught high school, you know, undergrads and graduate students. And I think that I didn't do much of this in middle school and high school. when I taught it, like, mm-hmm. I think I, I'd had pockets of it, right. Where I would give them, you know, some, where I would say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, what, what do you want to solve? What do you want to like, maybe give them a project to examine or project to and like giving them some wiggle room. But I think as a, a working with, you know, grad students and doctoral students are probably the closest I get to that, where I just say, you know, what do you want to study? And then I kind of help them depending on the types of stuff that they're wanting to examine, you know, then I'd go, okay, well, here's some stuff for you to read, or here's some stuff to check out. Um, or, you know, send them a video or whatever. Um, and it's, and it's embedded in that research and that activity. But again, that's like, that's not often, right? It's not often. Well, and, and like, you know, your example, I think is telling in that, I think it's true of the educational system and the way it's set up, right? Which is to say that we don't really even think about people as being apprentices into a a disciplinary field, right. Until they're essentially doing graduate work. Mm -hmm. So maybe undergrad, maybe, but usually not. So, so yeah, you're right. I think it's, it's probably true that the vast majority of our experiences, whether it's us as individual teachers or us as students, we're not anything like this. Like authentic activity is not the way that schools are organized um, around the authentic activity of the disciplinary homes. Now, one of the things I want to be careful about that I think um, first-time readers of this and students who are reading this early um, is then they say, well, school is an inauthentic context. And it's like, well, you have to be careful because actually school is a very authentic context. Uh, But what it isn't is authentic to the disciplinary 
home, yeah. right? So school is school. I mean, school has its own culture. It has an authentic culture. And we know this because you can go to almost any school in the country and it looks pretty much like every other school. Like you can walk into a classroom and know what's going on. And that's because there is a culture of schooling, right? But what Brown, Collins and Duguid are saying isn't that the culture of schooling is inauthentic in and of itself, but that it's inauthentic to the kinds of knowledge the practices, that we're trying to right. help kids learn, right? Yeah. So we want them to learn something. I just, one, one quote that really sticks out for me on, on page 33 in, in the middle column there, learning and acting are interestingly indistinct. Learning being a continuous lifelong process resulting from acting in situations. And for me, the key part of that is the acting in situations. So what they're saying is, Learning is not about knowledge, it's about acting. And when you put people in context and have them act, they learn, but that learning is is bound up in the acting. You can't just say, excuse me, now you've learned this thing, this concept, and you can carry it around with you. So one one of the big um, contrasts between this perspective and sort of traditional cognitive perspectives is the way that they think about what it means for knowledge, for you to move between contexts, right? So in a traditional cognitive point of view, we think about that as transfer, right? So there's some abstract knowledge you learn in place A, and now you're going to move to place B and use it. And um, to the degree that you can do that, you you have transferred the knowledge from one context to the other, and, and there's lots of research that show that that doesn't happen really right. Well. And and Brown College of Do Good <laughs> talks specifically. They have this Weight Watchers example of how people measure stuff, and it's a great thing about ma- measuring cottage cheese, and and it you know it's it's about fractions and how you figure out fractions, and um, and yeah, the point is like when. Their point is when you teach people in this way where you think they're going to abstract this knowledge and be able to carry it somewhere else, you fundamentally misunderstand the situated nature of that knowing. And therefore people can't do it. They can't, like you said, like they go somewhere else and it's like, well, why didn't you just do that? You know how to do this math. Why didn't you just do the math? And it's like, well, I didn't even think to do that. I didn't even think that was a thing. I didn't even think related. Right. It's, It's a totally different thing. Well, it's, I have that part highlighted, but I also have like, I, I always find it interesting that you and I have very similar things highlighted Mm. in the next part of that page. I have this part highlighted. So this is again on 33 and it says activity, concept, and culture are interdependent. No one can be totally, no one can be totally understood without the other two learning must involve all three. And Mm. so that's the, you know, we can't pull the activity away from the concept and pull it outside of the culture in which that activity is, is born out of. And Mm. so, you know, taking any of that, removing it from the other two, you know, makes it inauthentic. Yeah. 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 That's right. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's like talking about a hammer, like to talk about, like to focus on the the tool part. Right. It's like, if you were just like, Hey, you know, I got this tool, I got this hammer, you know, let's talk about what this hammer is. And you don't actually do anything with, I will like embed it in activity. Then what's the point? It's like, okay, we're going to, you know, let's watch a video about hammers. And then, and then, then we're going to be able to build something. It's like, come on, you know? Let's yeah, build something. And, and that's how we learn how to use the tools. And I think that's really what's interesting about that is they talked about that specifically. I think they talk about it from a chisel standpoint in the article. Mm-hmm. They say, okay, you know, here's a chisel and that chisel is itself just a tool, but however, different communities use that tool differently. And so yeah. if you're 
you know, a, a carpenter, you're going to use it one way. But if you're in this other community, they use it as a completely different, a different way. Right. And so the tool itself is, you know, agnostic, I guess, to come back to some of the things we talked about before, it, do, it doesn't have like any sort of, you know, culture attached to it. Mm-hmm. But, but when it's being used within context of activity, then it's important. Yeah. And then, and then building on that, you've got this idea of like, okay, so we're going to learn about hammers. <clears throat> so, so I'm going to give you a lecture about all the different kinds of hammers. So there's ball peen hammers and there's framing hammers and there's rubber mallets and there's, um, you know, there's pick axes, which are a variation on hammers. And so we're going to, we're going to give you this whole taxonomy of hammers and we're going to have you memorize when they're best used, like framing hammers or for when you're framing a house and finishing hammers or for this kind of thing. And you use rubber mallets when you're, you know, building furniture and, and wow. soon I'm like, impressed by your hammer knowledge. Thank Scott. you. See, I am. Yeah. That's because I, that's because I took good notes in hammer class. Um, <laughs> MC, MC hammer was the, the teacher. Of wow. Parachute shoe pants and the whole nine. And he, was I, awesome. I just heard everyone just download. Um, I mean, just delete yeah. this episode yeah. from there. No, they deleted it. When you, when you said we're back in our prime, they're just like, mm. Boop. yeah, no, that they they're here for that. They're here yeah. for that. Well, if they're here for that, then they're definitely here for an MC Hammer reference in a Hammer lecture, thing, right? That's all I'm saying. You're the MC Hammer of Thank science you. in between. Hey, man, he just wasn't, didn't he just tweet out some like science? He did some like philosophy or history of science, like mic drop thing. I'm serious. I'm not joking about this. I'm going to find this MC Hammer, like uh, show notes. Yeah, show we'll notes. You can it. show notes. But back to the point back to the hammer that we're hammering on is this, this idea that like, Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to teach you all about hammers, but we're not, you're not ever going to use a hammer in class. Um, or if, you know, if we're going to use a hammer, what I'm going to do is line up a whole bunch of nails and you're just going to pound nails with a hammer and until you do it without bending them or, you know, and, but I'm, but we're not going to say why you're pounding nails. You're just pounding nails. Like pounding nails is a thing you need to learn how to do because it's a skill right? And you want to be able to be good at pounding nails. Otherwise you can't build a house. It's like, well, you've lost track of the fact that the whole purpose of pounding nails is to build a house or to build something. And so if you're doing it in this abstracted context, you're not learning anything. So they don't know when to pound nails, right? Um, and maybe they just pound sand. Ba-dum-bum. Oh, um, oh sorry, wow. I'm, I should just stop talking. Yeah. You're, 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 you probably have something to say now because you're probably, awfully punny today. You are. Uh, it's really, well, that I wasn't know. a pun. That was not a pun. Uh, I don't know what that was, but like, it was something. It was something horrible. But it, was it was something and it wasn't good as a pun. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so he, they, they've talked about, we, we've talked about the apprenticeship part, part of this, but the, mm-hmm. the cognitive piece, I think, is the other part that they, they spent a little bit of time talking about. Um, because they're, I think they want to, you know, qualify that we're not talking about apprenticeships like that, that occur out in, you know, in fields of practice, right? We're not talking about the tailors. We're not talking about, you know, carpenters and things like that. We're talking about how we can, you know, translate this into school. And I think mm-hmm. that's the whole piece of, of why they introduce the qualifier of cognitive apprenticeships rather than just apprenticeships in general. Mm-hmm. And they say, uh, 
cognitive emphasizes that apprenticeship techniques actually reach well beyond the physical skills usually associated with apprenticeship to the kinds of cognitive skills more normally associated with conventional schooling. So they're trying to put it in the context of, of school. And I think that's the, um, you know, that's the important part of this. And yeah, that- one, of, one of the ways that they talk about that is this um, just plain folks thing. So they yeah. talk about like <clears throat> just plain folks, students and practitioners, right? So practitioners there, they mean like the people in that disciplinary field. So we'll, if we're sticking with science, we'll say scientists, right? And so, <clears throat> and then students are what we think of like in school, right? So what, what do students learn and how do they learn? And then just plain folks is how do people who are just, normal everyday people who have to do some of the tasks that involve this science knowledge, how do they do it? Right. Um, and, and they use that to say, you know, just plain folks act in the world. I mean, this is sort of the way they're describing it is like just plain folks just act in the world. So they just do a thing and make it work. Right. So their example sure. again is the measuring, you need to take three quarters of a, of a two thirds of a cup of cottage cheese. So how do you do that? Well, you, you know, you take two thirds and you slap it down and then you cut it and into quarters yeah. and, you know, and so it's like, okay, so just plain folks just do stuff. And then students, just learn stuff that's abstracted from the doing, right? So, so they're saying like, just plain folks just do stuff. Students just learn stuff. So in our, in our uh, apprenticeship and cognitive stuff, the just plain folks are sort of the apprentice, the apprentices, the students are just the cognitive. We're just going to teach them stuff. And then the practitioners are a combination of those things. Right. They combine the, the cognitive concepts with the doing practices to, to, to create these integrated things, right? So, so what they're arguing for is that disciplinary communities um, enculturate people by asking them to do things, but also focusing on the, the cognitive, the conceptual pieces of that work. Yeah, the, I, I still go back to that, you know, the, the cottage cheese example, because, you know, if, if you haven't read the article, and, and I'm assuming some, um, we're going to put it in the show notes, but if you if you haven't read it, so this is how, how one person approached the problem. They made a circle out of it and, and cut the circle into fours. And then they, you know, got rid of a quarter of the, the circle of cottage cheese <laughs> because that's how they translate like, well, okay, well, how can I do this? You know, rather than thinking about like, okay, well, we, we've learned fractions some other place. Right. Can we, can we use, you know, some of our fraction techniques um, they solve the problem, and it's a unique way of solving the problem. But that perfectly exemplifies the challenges with transfer. Right? Yeah. Is that every what fourth or fifth grader has learned fractions? Right? Yeah. How to Fraction- multiply fractions is the thing right. you know. Yep. Right. And here it is a situation where it would be perfect example of applying multiplication of fractions, and they don't see it as as being you know the skill to use in this example. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think that's a perfect example of how removing the context or removing the activity from it is is the problem is yeah. is, the, is the challenge of and and that is the difference between a cognitive perspective right and learning these you know heuristics right right and and then and then this socio cultural perspective which is all embedded in activity the other part where I, I i think that as i was reading this that kind of like made me think more about our design principles was uh the indexical representations oh, I, uh, I didn't know if you'd get to that one or not but that, yeah that's a good one 
What, is, yeah. what does it mean for language to be indexical? Yeah, because they do talk about that and how important that is, right? So right, because we, we that's that's embedded in one of our our learning principles for you know design spaces for our design principles for learning spaces. That's, there you go. That's, it. that's yeah. what you meant. That's what I meant. You know, flip flop flip flop that around is that <clears> you know that this this learning leaves a trail that there is like you know when when there's always some what's the word you use debris not debris uh, residue residue that's right so that there's some residue uh, that comes from learning and and that. Uh, and I think that's inherent in, in what they're talking about here is that there's representations of the of of knowledge and learning that is part of the process. Right. And and this so just to dig into indexical briefly so that we have a notion of it. Right. So this is on the f- first page of this article. But but this idea that lang- like you can't think of language, even language, like what their point, I think, here is to say even language can't be abstracted from its its context. Yeah. And, and what they mean by that is like when, when you and I talk and I say, Oh, this or that, or um, next or tomorrow, like all of those words only make sense in a context, right? So this only makes sense if you know what I'm referring to with, when I say this, cause this can mean anything. So, so the contextual nature of language and they're, they're choosing the most extreme examples like here. Yeah. Um, but um but the idea is that what they're saying is all knowledge is like that. It's just that we notice it with these indexical words because they're obvious, but they're saying all of it. So when you talk about, and, and we talk about this actually in science too, when we talk about force, right? So we're like yeah. force has, and, and the way we typically say it is they have colloquial meanings, right? Which is to say that people use the word force in their just plain folks language. Um, I'm going to force the door. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is. They, he forced they use, me to do this. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. And so, um, so this idea that force has a colloquial meaning. Well, the other way to say that is force is um, embedded in a, in a context always. And so it has meaning in a particular context that is, that is related to the context in which it is being used. And it doesn't have some abstracted perfection sort of, you know, platonic ideal of a meaning, it has a meaning that always is embedded in context and negotiated in the context of that by the people who are in the context using that word. So <clears throat> that, that I think is the, is the big um, thing here, the big challenge that they're, you know, that they put, put the first, well, not the first, but one of the big stakes in the ground of the challenge against uh, um you know, conceptual change models and, and, and cognitive models of learning in general, right. Um, is just this idea that like <clears throat> for, for folks with a cognitive perspective, the more abstracted the knowledge is from the context, the better it is. It's, it's like when you say a scientific theory applies to lots of different contexts, you're saying, Oh, well, that's a better theory. Right. Um, but, but what Brown Collins and Duguid are saying is you, you can't abstract it. And right. when you do abstract it, you fooled yourself into thinking that this means something when really what you've done is just taken away its meaning and turned it into this object that has no meaning out of its context. Yeah, and so the kids learned this, this theory, this abstractification, is that a word? Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. maybe it is mm-hmm. um, this abstracted concept. And, and if they can say, okay, here's Newton's three laws, right? Cause they, but then trying to get students to identify examples of that or apply that in situations is a real challenge because they're the thing is the law, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the, 
you know, seeing it in activities or seeing it in situations or seeing it in settings. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's so I dense. Think, it's such an awesome article. It is. But the beautiful thing about it, I think, and you said this already, but I mean, the difference between this and Dewey, like this, this has a lot, resonates a lot with Dewey, but the difference between this and Dewey is this is a really well-written article. Like Dewey's, yeah, I love Dewey, but he's hard to read. And yeah. like you say, it's because he chooses words carefully and he's of his era and, you know, he's 120 years ago he was writing. Um, but these guys, you know, it's, it's a really clear um, and, and as much as we talk about esoteric, I mean, there's a lot of richness in here that's hard to understand, but it's not because the language is difficult to follow. It's because the concepts are so right. counter to the way that we think about the world that it really is a struggle to say like, well, what does it really mean to say that all knowledge is contextual? Because it's a big, it's a big statement. Um, yeah. And then they provide like, like everyday examples. I mean, that's exactly. the greatest part about it. It's like yeah. they have these really you know, esoteric concepts that they're presenting, but then they're like, here, let me show you examples of where this comes from or how this is, you know, represented in, in other things. And the other part is that a lot of the things that they reference are also, I would put them kind of in that same category of really, you know, accessible writers, right? These are yeah. all like people who, you, you know, if you're like looking for a list of things to read, like going to, you know, the, the citations here is a really good start because a lot of the people they reference are also as heady, but also as accessible, right? Yeah. And so like Lave is in that category, Gertz is in that category. Those are mm -hmm. folks who are like, you know, pretty, you know, Schoenfeld to a degree, you know, those are all things that are, are pretty accessible writing and they're all like right. things that, so I think that it's coming from a place where, I mean, and we can certainly talk about people who, you know, who are well published, who are like out there, like Dewey, like just using, you know, really crazy, crazy. Yes, I'm sure we're both thinking of the same person. I know we are thinking about the same person. But we're not going to say who that person is. We're not. Uh, all right. But, but uh, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> this, he, you know, the, the folks that are cited in here are, in many respects are, are sort of a who's who, but, you know, Barbara Rogoff, Lauren Resnick, um, you know, Barb, uh, Barbara White, um, you know, there, this, you know, it, it, it is a, it, but, but the influence of Lave, and I think this is important. I'll, I'll say one other thing about that is, you know, Lave is a sociologist and by training. And so her, her perspective and, and her impact on, on the, you know, learning theory community um, was, was large. And it was large because she was in some sense coming from the outside at that time. Right. So, so the, the learning theory community um, in the sixties and seventies was dominated by educational psychologists. Yeah. Um, and, and when Vygotsky's work starts getting translated and brought into the U.S. That starts to shift things. And then you start to see influences of people like Gene Lave, who are sociologists, who start to, to bring in different ideas that are not driven from a psychological point of view, but are driven from a sociological point of view. And that shift is really, um, you know, is, is really big. And also, again, leads to uh, leads to all this this work in sociocultural theory. So, I mean, <clears throat> That, you know, the communities of practice work um, uh, of Lave Wenger is, is 
just as important uh, and potentially even more important in some regards than this article. But this article, because it is this sort of training wheels article, like I'm, I was saying before, I think it has it it has a lot of resonance with a lot of different people and and people can i think i think for all the reasons we just described they use concrete examples and they draw on them really well they <clears throat> they do a good job of sort of talking about this in in many respects in ordinary language they they um you know they do a good job of specifically trying to support the reader and understanding these really complicated ideas and they use apprenticeship which is a thing we all sort of grok naturally you know we're like oh i get what apprenticeship is yeah. um so when they use it it's a it's a really good metaphor yeah i'm looking at uh you know lave is uh referenced what like at least six times as the as the lead author and then there's a bunch of times where she's also um referenced as like the the second or third author in different yeah. citations i also see roy p in there yeah, who roy p. yeah out. Yeah. And that was probably pretty early in his career. Yeah, um, well, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a paper presentation that probably turned into, you know, his more seminal like book chapters and, and articles about distributed intelligence and distributed cognition. I, I met Roy P once. I think you probably met him a bunch of times. A few, but not a bunch. Yeah. 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 At, well, I, at the, ICLS, you know, yeah, years ago. exactly. ICLS. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these, the, you know, these generationally, these people are definitely ahead of you and I, um, some by a lot, like Engstrom up there, um, and DeSessa. Um, so, so, but they also overlapped with us, right? So we've been at conferences where, where these folks yeah. were presenting their work and have seen them in the flesh, um, and in some cases talked with them. So, yeah, I mean, the, this is, but I think that also speaks to how recent this whole um, turn, this whole sociocultural turn is, right? And I think as we go into other learning theories, as we read, you know, and talk more about stuff, we can talk more about that. But, but yeah, I mean, 89, um, you know, it's not that long ago, right? And if you think about, about the difference between like, how far ago, John Dewey was and that and and then Thorndike and a lot of the beginning educational psychologists like they were a hundred years ago right mm -hmm. and this is this is you know we were in high school and college when this sort of revolution was happening and so um so it but it's, it's a it's a, it's a revolution to a degree in terms of how we describe learning or how we conceptualize learning but this is also happening at the same time that our schools are becoming more and more um, guided and governed by standardized tests, which is like the, you know, the absolute other end of the continuum mm -hmm. epistemologically of this. Right. And yeah. so that's an interesting. So we have these two separate communities that are really playing in the same sandbox, right? They're in yeah. existing in the same place, you know, where, you know, we're, we're changing how we're developing new ways of thinking about how people learn, right? Mm -hmm. yep. At the same time, people were trying to, you know, take learning down to the minutia of, you know, what can be bubbled on a test yep. and on Scantron. And right. yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. It's fascinating that, and even just referring to the NGSS and thinking about that, right? That, that the NGSS is, is in many respects, 
the epitome of of this sort of knowledge abstracted from its context. Like they're they're trying not to do it, right? They're yeah. trying to write it in such a way that says, look, you gotta know plate tectonics by engaging in these practices that also contain these cross-cutting concepts and da 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 da, da right? But but the idea of making a list uh, of things that kids should know, should know. abstracted right. from their context. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of the things that I note um when when I think about this article is like folks from a cognitive point of view tend to think about use the word no. That kid knows this. Whereas people from a sociocultural perspective, if they're going to talk about knowing, talk about knowing, right? right. They say, see it as a verb. So there's a noun versus verb way of describing what what know uh, what it is to know. Um, and and I think that reflects the idea that like to know something is to have an abstracted sort of heuristic or model or concept in our head that we carry around with us that is an object. And knowing is a practice that can only happen in, a, in an act, in activity and, and in usually a social context. So we got lots more to say about this, but I, sure. think, I think, I think now is the time when we should celebrate our joys. So you want to, you want to go first today? Scott? Sure. I'll go first today. All right. Sure. All right. Look at I, you. Um, look at me. Um, <laughs> so I am going to recommend a podcast, um, which is not unusual for us, but this one is uh, like an OG throwback uh, podcast that uh, a friend and colleague here in State College did. Um, I don't. I, I should figure out when he started it. It was at least. 10 years ago, maybe more. And it's called gutter balls, the big Lebowski deep cast. And this was, uh, this, this podcast was innovative in many respects. One of the ways, um, and he's actually been, I think it was the Washington post did an article on him and his, uh, so this is Brad Koslick. Um, he is an employee at Penn state and, and, uh, and director of the TLT studio. He's a, he's a tech nerd and, um, and, and an awesome dude. Um, uh, also an excellent photographer, it turns out, but, uh, but, and he's probably my inspiration when I think about local people who podcast, but the, but the concept of gutter balls, uh, it's evolved, but it originated in the idea that, that he and his buddy, Adam, were going to talk about one minute of the movie each week, um, and go through the entire big Lebowski movie one minute at a time and talk about wow, it. Wow. That's a and, great concept. It and it is a concept that you know spawned other podcasts. Like other people have done this with other movies. They've done it with movie franchises like Star Wars. But I think in many respects, these guys really invented that genre. So it's, I mean, it's hilarious. It's fascinating. If you're a big Lebowski fan, it's it's um, it's worth your time. But I will warn you that uh, you know, even though they talk about one minute of the movie, you know, each episode is usually an hour or more. So it's not like they're just like talking a little bit and, and not everything's about the big Lebowski, but, um, but they're great. And, uh, and I, I highly recommend it. They've spun, spun that after, after they finished the movie, they've sort of experimented with what the podcast is about and it's done all sorts of different things. And, and those things are great too. But if you want to start with, with the real thing, go back to the original episodes and, uh, listen to the deep cast version of it. So it it always brings me joy. They're still going, they're still cranking. Um, but they are they are some real podcasting OGs, so it's worth uh, checking them out. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, I I have heard a lot of different podcasts that do that. That yeah. you know, not necessarily do a minute of it, but like we'll do. You know, I, there's a West Wing 
uh, podcast that does like every episode and there's like hundreds of West Wing episodes. Yeah. Um, so my, uh, my joy this week is a, an app. Um, I'm a word game guy. I, mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the New York Times app has like the word, like some word games in it and different games in it. And so there's a, a game in there that was free for the longest time called Spelling Bee. And Spelling Bee is there's, you know, uh, a letter in the middle and then there's like five or six letters around the outside. And what you try to do is to make as many four letter words or more from those. Mm-hmm. And it has to always mm-hmm. have the middle letter. And so, you know, each day I would get this, you know, app, like a new spelling bee and, you know, try to get through, you know, the different stages and try to get as, you know, like, you know, if you get all of them, you got this little, ah, you know, and, but then what happened is they, at some point they decided that that shouldn't be free for subscribers anymore, that you now have to subscribe to the puzzles part of the New York times. So if you're going to do it digitally, so it was like $40 a year. And I was like, that is a lot to so i went looking on the app store to see if i could find an app that does something similar and there's an app called pangram that was two dollars two dollars forever i have it forever yeah i own it and so what i've been trying to do is just limit myself to one game a day so it still kind of feels like the spelling bee but sometimes they're really hard because they'll be you know like 700 words or something that you're trying to find. I know. Uh, And, and you get more points if you can use all of the letters, you know, in as like a pangram, right? Mm -hmm. So, so very cool pangram app on the, uh, the app store. Check it out. $2 versus 40, you know, can use that $38 for something else. Go buy myself a, you know. Yeah. It's a a 90, 95% discount. Well, look at you. Quick math. Well, that's because I did a lot of, uh, you know, projectile motion problems. Sure. You were able to take that abstract concept and apply it. That's right. And transfer, transfer right right there. Just transfer that. (laughs) Deep lorp. That's great. All right. Well, I think that's probably where I should, you know, put this to bed. Please. Yes. So, um, yeah, we'll see you next time. In between. In between. See you then.